Okay, so we we have a few questions with regard to Lord Rama. Uh, it's like Lord Rama in the <laughs> jury box. <laughs> so, uh, but before we take up the question, just a few things about understanding human behavior. Normally, we look at a human behavior and understand the reasons and we try to understand or judge a human being, right? But uh, there is another way wherein we understand the human uh, person, the person and then we try to interpret the behavior. So the question arises, is it possible to know what a human being is deep within and then understand the behavior, which is the more correct way? Isn't it? We all experience many times situations wherein we have been wrongly understood. Wrongly understood because uh, the person who understood us didn't know what's going on inside me. So, um, in many of these myths and legends, especially this uh, Itihasas, Ramayana and Mahabharata, they've been written by seers who went, who started with this, who the human being is, and then from that basis they extended into the human behavior or his actions and nature. So, uh, Rama's story starts with this, that Rama is a divine incarnation. Now, I understand that in today's times, divine divine incarnation are a you know, big cry. But let us put it like that. Divine incarnation is very easy to understand. That the absolute source of creation from time to time intervenes in our earthly life, takes on that aspect or that stage of evolution where we all are. And then he carries it to next step further. So, Rama is comes at that point of time when there is largely a humanity which is more like an animal and Rakshasik and Asurik. Now, these terms have to be understood in their true context. Animal-like means basically prone to simply largely, you know, um, vital pleasures and, you know, food. And these are the things which, which are natural to, you know, an animal kind of a humanity. But higher thought, reason, illumined mind, like, you know, many of you here so beautifully have asked the question. Those things are not common or natural to uh, animal humanity. Asuric and Rakshasic humanity likes to devour and finish. They are full of greed and ambition and lust and they want to finish everything or control and dominate everything according to their uh, idea and their wish mainly for the uh, personal enjoyment and gratification. So this, this is the kind of humanity in which we see that Rama comes and Rama has come to establish a higher standard of conduct. Now, today we have moved very far from Rama and we have standards of conduct which surely in many of us have ex exceed the times of Rama. But when we look at those days when there is largely an animal and Rakshasik and Asuric humanity, Rama comes to establish at least a more humanized conduct which is uh, for that age, suitable and possible and practicable for that age. The second aspect that we find in Rama's story is that Rama has come with a particular mission and if we understand the mission, rest of his actions become very logical and explicable. So his mission in life was not personal enjoyment like many of us, you know, would have that, you know, life is about get married, be happy, uh, you know, have a cushy life, live by certain basic uh, yardsticks uh, or basic values. But basically aim of life is like 
you know personal life to be satisfied rama has come to establish in place of that raj dharma so for rama always the kingdom and the king uh, the ways of the king which are meant to look after each and every member of the uh, you know family um, which the king uh, governs is far more important than anything which is of a personal nature this second aspect we see in rama's life so raj dharma as it is called the third aspect in rama's life is he has come with a mission to eliminate the asuric and rajasic uh, rakshasic humanity which is not willing to be humanized and go further so these are the things which govern rama's action so we'll see that time and again how rama's story unfolds and how these actions this basic uh, consciousness of rama governs his actions so let me take up some of these questions very interesting and i am so glad they i mean i had more questions than these but i am so happy that you know you have asked these questions so first about the incidents of kaikai now you see king dashratha belonged to a lineage where there was only one one thing which was of utmost important and it was the whole lineage of kings were known for that king harishchandra then you know uh, raja bhagirath and all the ikshvanku clan if you see so in those days lineage was very important because there were certain common values that we all, they all uh, upheld um, harishchandra raja shivi so the common value in uh, the common thread of value that ran through this lineage of kings was that whatever happens what i promise i will stand by that so dashrat belong to that lineage the same thing we see in rama's life that whatever we promised uh, they promised they stood by that so it was quite natural that you know when kaki went for war with him which is something tremendous speaks very highly of those far back times and she saved dashratha in the battle when he you know fell unconscious at a given point of time and naturally pleased with her he said you can ask me anything that you wish to ask and she said i'll ask at the right time she didn't scheme or plan at that point of time and then subsequently time unfolds and a moment comes when kekai's ears are fed by mantra now you see in ramayana it's not that every every character is a human uh, archetype this archetype word means ramayana and mahabharata itihasas and those characters you will find all through till present times so that is the beauty of that life uh, that you know portrayal that's why ramayana and mahabharata have endured i can say this as a psych- psychiatrist and a psychologist that i have learned much more about human psychology through these books so mantra represents a type of a woman or a man it could be it doesn't matter who actually can poison slowly your consciousness it is a, it comes to tell us that you know we should be careful of the company we keep well kekai is a great lady without a doubt but because she is constantly fed by this woman her consciousness gets polluted so this is a aspect of the story where she eventually gets so much overpowered by ambition for her own son becoming a king uh, that you know she asks this boon from king dashratha should king dashratha would have, uh, had uh, to agree to this boon well he could have said no it's a wrong boon it's something wrong i don't uh, grant this but as i said for king dashratha his whole lineage his it was almost like his identity that i am going to stand by my promise it's not a you know it is something which 
Sri Krishna much later revealed to us that no, dharma is greater than promise. But Dashrata was not in the age of Sri Krishna. He was not fortunate enough to get his counsel. If Krishna was there, he would have definitely told him that don't think about your promise, think about dharma. But well, King Dashrata had its own issues. He is not a you know, perfect ideal person. Nobody is a perfect ideal person in the age of Rama. But they are transiting from one level of perfection to another level. So King Dasrata says, well, I promised you and he is in a state of dilemma. He doesn't outrightly banish Rama. He is in a state of dilemma and Rama comes to know. So Rama goes and he agrees. He says, no, you must uphold your promise. I would prefer that my father upholds my promise and I fulfill it rather than I enjoy the kingdom because then I will always carry this burden. And what are 14 years? I'll go and come back. So that's how he thought. After all, uh, life was not you know, limited those days. People lived very long and 14 years was really nothing. At the same time, for Rama, it was a wonderful opportunity to take up this whole task that he had undertaken to go all the way and uh, spread a nobler way of life. So Rama's mission, Rama goes as a sevak. He says uh, wherever he goes, that the Raja is King Bharat and I am only doing his, the fulfilling the Raj Dharma that, you know, he would want an ideal kingdom where human beings live in a, a more humanized way. So he goes through Kishkinda and Dandakaran all the way to Lanka. Now in that journey we see that he encounters first the people of Kishkinda who are more like animals. Now there there are two kinds of um, you know animal humanity. Vanara by the way is um, uh, is not uh, animal like you know now we portray them all as monkeys, but they are early humanoids, humanoids. They are a kind of pre-human race which has existed. But that apart. Now he encounters them and there are two lines of um, you know Vanara existing at that time. One which are represented by Bali. Again we see the representation of characters. So Bali believes in might is right and he is an extremely mighty person. Actually Rama, why Rama? Nobody could have killed him in a straight to straight combat. It was impossible because Bali had a uh, boon. That whoever comes in front of him, he can absorb half his power. So imagine if Rama goes in front of Wali and fights a hand-to-hand combat. It would literally mean that Wali would be Wali plus half of Rama. So it was actually impossible to defeat him in any kind of uh, frontal combat. So what Rama does? Rama does the law of a war. In warfare, warfare has its own dharma. Even today, if you know, in modern time, with all our modern values, if you have a terrorist entering somewhere, you know, we had those that uh, Taj Hotel um, whole incidents, 26-11. So, um, no soldier, no warrior, I can assure you, you know, from a military background, that no warrior will say that, no, come in front of me, come with a gun and I'll take a gun and I'm going to see whoever wins. That can happen in a cinema. But real war is not about that. So, Rama justified his action within him by saying that, well, I want the type of Sugriv to grow further because for Wali, might is right. This kind of an evolution approach would lead to titanic uh, kings. Whereas Sugriv represents the type of uh, animal uh, humanity which can be humanized. So, this is the representative story of the um, Sugriv-Wali episode. A um, little more about it is that when Wali goes and fights the titan inside and Wali kills him, but you know, he lets off shouts because there is a question like that. Sugriv, of course, 
closes and runs away because he knows that somebody who has killed Wali can easily finish the whole kingdom. That's why. So that the titan cannot escape. That's That was the reason why he had covered it. But Wali comes and instead of trying to understand Sugriv, trying to, in fact, even pardon him, even if he did whatever he did, he threatens him and marries his wife. That's the reason Rama gives when Wali says that, why did you kill me? Why didn't you, I mean, um, so that's the time when Rama explains to him that you are speaking of dharma when you initiated a whole chain of a dharma. During those days, even today, to marry somebody's wife forcefully. Okay, if she loved him, it's a different matter. And his wife continued to, she got married because for her the kingdom and its safety was more important. Uh, so this is the reason why Wali had to be killed. And the second thing in that story is that Sugriv does a Maitri with Rama, which is a very symbolic story. It's a story of the animal within us uh, joining hands with the divinized human within us. And when we do that, the animal type is uplifted. So that's the uh, background of the story. And once Rama gives a word of promise to Sugriv, he belongs to, as I said, a lineage where promise is uppermost. It doesn't matter. He knew very well, like Sri Krishna, that he, whatever he is doing, killing Bali from behind, one day humanity will question it. But for him, his personal reputation was less important than standing by the friend and standing by the standards of the Raj Dharma and his work that he had come to do. This is Rama's logic that it doesn't matter. People will judge me and uh, think that I did something wrong. But Wali had to go because if Wali survived and Sugriv went away, then the whole kingdom of Vanara would have developed along the lines of Rakshasa and the Asura. So this is how the Wali episode unfolds. Then we see a very interesting aspect of Rama when he walks into further down into Kishkinda and that is the famous Supandha episode. Now here again, um, the poet, the master poet Valmiki uh, speaks of two types of human conduct. One is Swatantrata. Swatantrata is where we have Sita. Sita out of her own free will chose to be with Rama. She was not compelled. And that speaks so highly of, uh, you know, not only Sita. Any Sita is a very powerful character. I am not going into that aspect. Very powerful character. In fact, uh, it is said that it is Sita who went with Ravana to try to convert him. Because the story of Rama and Ravana doesn't start on the earthly plane. If you read the Ramayana, it starts when they are, you know, Lord Vishnu's uh, gatekeepers. And they fall from grace. And Rama has to come back and convert them. So that is the mystic and occult dimension of the story. In all these stories, you will see these three dimensions. An action on the physical plane, an action on the occult planes and an action on the spiritual plane. So this story has all these three things very beautifully interlaced with each other. So then when Sita uh, you know, goes into Kishkindha and we have the famous Supandha episode, we know that Lakshmana is a person... Prone to anger. He is quick to anger. Now there is a line of evolution which is Swatantra. Which is about freedom of choices. I choose. But there is another word which is used in Hindi. Which is called Swachandata. I will do as I wish. Now there are two different things. So Supanka represents the type of humanity. It is not about being a man or a woman. But who is Swachand. So what happens today. If I have to put in modern terms Supanka. Who is you know, not so innocent a girl. She has threatened Sita. Because he wants to marry Lakshmana. Now in today's terms, what would you call such a man or a woman? Supposing a man threatens somebody's wife 
because he or or the husband because he wants to marry this girl forcefully now that person will be called a stalker if he is against doing something against the wish well if lakshmana loved her there was no problem at all but lakshmana was married and lakshmana didn't want to get married to her and he had a freedom of choice now yes what lakshmana did is wrong and nobody can justify it not everything in ramayana has to be justified he was quick to anger he could have probably you know done something much more but the only thing which he did was little bit of you know uh, nose chopping which is not good it it's not by today's standard we don't do it but one can understand why those standards were upholding personal dignity is very important now if i can put it like this that supposing a man is talking persistently and today a woman gets very angry and takes out a dagger and you know uh, threatens him or you know saves herself we can understand this action something similar took place she was not an ordinary girl she was a rakshasi she had lot of mayavi powers incidentally if you go to lanka you will see still that there is a whole cult in the name of supankha she was not just any ordinary woman she had powers and she wanted she had threatened to kill sita because you know she wanted to forcibly marry lakshmana so this is the background of why he did not completely a good act not definitely not a very decent act but given the whole background we can understand the act So this what happens in the Supankha episode. The rest is history. She goes and tells Ravana, but uh, and Ravana gets uh, angry. Brother gets angry. Understandable, whatever she has spoken. But when the brother gets angry, a man of the caliber of Ravana, supposing somebody has hurt my sister, what would I do? I would go if I am a strong person. I would go and challenge him in a frontal combat. Come. you have dared to touch my sister come if you have the guts fight with me this is a warrior clan but what does ravana do he deceives and takes away sita by force this is very ignoble sita was no way involved if he had to punish somebody by the yardsticks of justice he should have come and challenge lakshman i even told rama you stay away let me just have a mortal combat so he did something which was full of deceit which was the way of ravana if you see the life of ravana in ravana's life ambition deceit lustfulness uh, taking women by force if you see the whole story it is very well documented i mean he was a being like that yes he was a bhakta also he was a very talented person he was a very uh, you know educated means uh, uh, literate person but you know ravana's story comes to prove us that we may have many talents we may have you know great capacities in art music we may be you know we may have a degree from harvard university or wherever yet in our consciousness if we are asurik and rakshasi even if we are a bhakta we bring that there so ravana brought a lot of egoism even in bhakti and the result is a fall so ravana is a prototype of humanity an archetype of humanity who is extremely talented capable even vidwan he had read the vedas and yet he did not change himself within and the result was the downfall progressive downfall uh, leading to you know uh, the inevitable end so as i said each of these stories are an archetype if you look at them like that it's a beautiful you know message to all of us as long as humanity remains ramana story will remain re- relevant because uh, you know uh, you see through the different human characters and their different shades now he comes and kidnaps sita somebody asks the question why did she cross the lakshman rekha just for information sake the 
इंसिडेंस ऑफ लक्ष्मण रेखा इज नाइदर इन वाल्मीकि रामायण नॉर इन रामचरित मानस ओके सो इट इज आई डोंट नो वेयर द इंसिडेंस इज कम फ्रॉम बट नेवर वेल सीता वॉज ए वेरी काइंड एंड कॉम्पैशनेट लेडी एंड अकॉर्डिंग टू मिस्टिक लिटरेचर शी डेलिबरेटली वेंट विद रावणा टू ट्राई एंड कन्वर्ट हिम बट रावणा डिड नॉट सो दिस इज दस्पेक्ट ऑफ द सीता स्टोरी एंड इफ सम ऑफ अस मे नॉट बी अवेयर बिकॉज दिस इज रेलिवेंट टू द अग्नि परीक्षा दिस इज ए कन्वर्सेशन डॉक्यूमेंटेड इन वाल्मीकि रामायण बिटवीन रामा एंड सीता बिफोर द होल थिंग स्टार्ट सो रामा इन इज डिवाइन नाउ दे आर स्पीकिंग एज डिवाइन बींग्स लाइक यू नो वेन लेट से प्राइम मिनिस्टर स्पीक्स टू द नेशन देर इज वन थिंग बट वेन ही स्पीक्स टू इज काउंसिल ऑफ मिनिस्टर्स इट्स समथिंग वेरी इंटीमेट दैट ही इज डिस्कसिंग वेन ही स्पीक्स टू इज वाइफ ही इज नॉट मैरिड बट लेट से टू एन इंटीमेट फ्रेंड देर ही विल डिस्कलोज हिज डीपेस्ट सीक्रेट्स so there is a conversation documented between sita and rama uh, and why it is important to understand all this is that uh, you know we often read snippets of his story and it's good to know the whole story in uh, great detail so rama says the time has come when we have to fulfill the work for which we have come what is that work one is to take ravana back you know because originally he is there uh, you know one of the person who kept guards on the gates of lord vishnu and try to convert him and the second is the mission of taking away the asuric and rakshasic element refining the animal and thereby raising humanity to uh, one notch higher so um, but sita being the divine mother no ravana can come near so sita says okay then i will go into agni and bring out my shadow aspect so it is uh, shadow aspect means sita holds back her divinity within you see this you will see very often in the story of mother and shurbindo also and he speaks about how the avatar is somebody who puts on a human appearance so sita now because the whole play has to begin she becomes a very ordinary humanity because she has to show how an ordinary woman can fight against a tyrant king so that's the message that sita gives and how independent she can be if you look at ramayana only from the story of sita it is amazing story somebody has said that you know urmila was the greatest no doubt urmila is great no doubt about it but sita is unparalleled and i'll show you how ramayana itself brings out that so sita holds back her divinity and puts on just a little appearance of a ordinary woman otherwise ravana could not have come near or touched her and the first sign of that is when she uh, tells rama that well you know there is a golden uh mrig and i want it for myself and ravana tells her that you know be careful of things which are unusual because there is nothing like a golden uh, you know uh, deer and yet uh, she insists which is very unusual of sita and ravana rama goes and then you know subsequently lakshmana is sent we all know that story not going into the detail because of the time but yes that story indicates is there to show two things one is that how sita had managed to veil the divinity and only her human self was in the front second is this story has become an a symbol you know of running after the golden deer it's called as you know mrigamarichika um, so that story itself has become so beautiful that today it is it is a phrase in hindi that well don't run after mrigamarichika something which looks golden deer it's a very unusual thing don't run after such thing but that is one aspect of the story Uh, from where the whole journey begins of rama's mission why did sita cross the lakshman rekha well she was compassionate she was kind and you know ravana had come in a deceitful way and then you know he abducts and the rest is history but what is beautiful in that journey of rama 
is the seeds of modern socialism not modern socialism but true socialism now socialism is that all people are equal but rama sets a very high standard when he goes through that he becomes friends with uh vanara he becomes friends with vulture when you know jatayu is killed he becomes friend even with the rakshasa and the asura vibhishana is part of part and parcel of his you know uh, rama's entourage so eventually rama creates a world empire a world empire you know within the indian range aryavarth wherein all these people had their place had their own kingdoms rama never usurped anybody's kingdom that is something very amazing Rama goes into Kiskinda he kills Vali but Rama doesn't say that I will be the king so he set very high standards of nationalistic thought that well i enter to defend in modern times you can speak about the formation of bangladesh india went into bangladesh liberated the bangladeshis came back india didn't say that now you know you are a vassal state which we know that certain countries do so rama set this standard that even when you go in to help don't usurp so he thrones sugriv and subsequently you know wali's son angad who himself becomes uh, you know rama's favorite he goes to lanka ravana is overthrown but rama doesn't stay even for a day saying that well i am going to be the king now because i am the one who has conquered he lets the throne be on vibhishna who is a local who is a native person if you look at from this point of view you'll see that what a high standard of raj dharma of kingship that rama established both as a socialist and as a democrat and because he set the highest standards of democracy we speak about democracy as something modern look at rama's democracy there is a law of the land during that time and the law states that if a woman has stayed with another man see this is the loophole of the law if a woman has stayed with another man for whatever period of time she has to prove her chastity now this is something which is not right today we know that definitely we know that but when we in those days when there is an animal humanity when there is a rakshasic humanity man or woman this was the law it was an unfortunate law and rama eventually changes it but it is still the law when the whole incidents happens of the dhobi see this is how it comes now sita's agni pariksha is basically a mystic symbol there is no doubt that anybody walking through fire having a human body will be burned to ashes so surely that incidents which has been uh, first of all sita herself says that you know i want to walk through the fire incidentally uh, in the valmiki ramayana it is not uh, rama asking sita to go through that nobody asks sita sita says i must come and that's a very very beautiful mystic symbol in two ways one is sita represents the divine power which has diminished herself to uh, ordinary human nature you know that story where she goes into fire and her shadow self is in front so we also have a divine nature but right now that is veiled and you know the human nature as we have today is usurped by the asura now see the mystic symbol of the story that it is usurped by ravana now when this nature when even when you kill the demon within the ego within nature is still stamped by the contact of the asura and it must go through a process of purification so sita story of agni pariksha well we are very rational beings i'm sure and i don't believe and none of us would believe that a woman or a man even a god would walk through fire and come back unscathed certainly not that story is very clearly a mystic symbol so as i said in this story you have all these three things interlaced there is a human element of the story dimension of the story there is an occult dimension of the story there is a mystic dimension of the story there is a spiritual and even a divine dimension of the story 
So this is the Agni Pariksha. When they go to the kingdom, this washerman, now look at the paradox, washerman washes clothes. Story is amazing. You know, Ramayana is, uh, I mean, <laughs> something, uh, most wonderful story. So what happens to this um, washerman? Washerman washes the clothes, but his consciousness is still polluted. When Sita comes, he raises this word. He raises this word that why there is a different set of laws. He doesn't say that Sita should be tested or anything. He said why there is a different set of laws for the king and for the commoner. Now this was where Rama had erred. He had slipped completely that there are laws, archaic laws which need to be changed. Today that's why we see that you know uh, one of the things that the prime minister the moment he took over he wanted to change the laws. So there are archaic laws. Rama should have paid attention. He didn't pay attention. Actually he went into the forest the only person that time who was governing was Bharat. And Bharat also was absent. So Shatrugan was, you know, governing the kingdom. And an incident had taken place in the kingdom wherein a woman had gone away with somebody and when she came back, she had to be banished. Now this man quotes it. Now this incident when it happened was, uh, the decision was taken by Shatrugan. Neither Bharat nor Rama. They were not there to consult. Rama comes back and within a short period of time, this question is raised. Maybe he would have changed the law. Maybe he wouldn't have. He, he may have overlooked it. But when a commoner raises a question that why there are two yardsticks, one for the king and one for the commoner, Rama for whom Rajdharma is uppermost. Rama takes the call and says, okay, I will uphold the law of the land and then I will show that even while I uphold the land, yet I will set a new standard of morality. So what was that new standard Rama set? Sita is banished, one of the most tragic episodes. But there are two fallouts of this episode. So whenever we look at an episode or an incident, we should see the fallouts. Two fallouts of that episode. One fallout is that throughout his rest of his life, Rama never remarries. Rama is known for this, that Rama loved once and that was the last of Rama's love. During that time, Kshatriyas could remarry. They were asked to remarry because they needed a progeny. The king, Dashrata, he had three wives. It was very common. You know, even King Janak, though he is a Rajrishi, it was very common because they wanted to have the lineage as the more the merrier. I mean... Today, we live in a different world and a better world in many ways. But in the age of Rama, it was needed that he remarries so to have a progeny. And though he was advised, Rama refuses it. Because Rama says something what, you know, I remember Shabindu speaking, Amrilani Devi, where I have loved once, I cease not from loving. When you look at Ramayana from the point of view of, um, you know, uh, love, story of love, he is upholding the Raj Dharma of sending Sita away. But at the same time, Rama's heart is stone. If you read the story, Rama actually goes into what today we will say a state of depression. That during that time, uh, Rishi Vasis comes and counsels him and explains to him the nature of creation, uh, all these things. But Rama finds it very difficult. So what Rama does is, as a symbol of Sita still being with him, he keeps her image by his side. So Rama didn't cease loving Sita. Even though he upheld the Raj Dharma, he didn't see his loving Sita. Now in this story, we have a mystic symbol again. 
Sita and Rama, their coming together is the coming together of the divine and material nature. You see in traditional yoga, we say that, well, nature cannot be changed and the soul can be purified and united with the divine. So Rama represents the divine soul and Sita represents earth nature. See the mystic symbol, she is born from the earth. Do we really believe that somebody really comes from the earth in a kumbhak? It is clearly a mystic story. It's not something which is real in this sense that actually she was born like a virgin birth. Virgin birth story is also symbolic. So Sita emerges from the Bhumi. She is a Bhumi Ja. She is earth nature. And Rama is the divine soul. Their coming together can establish a ideal kingdom on earth which is called as Rama Rajya. But they cannot come together because always there is a Dhobi with a doubt in his mind that it's impossible for nature to be purified. It cannot be purified enough that it can mate with the divine soul and a divine progeny be born. So this story of parting of Rama and Sita, which is an extremely tragic story, yet it leaves a stamp of a possibility. They could, if human beings could efface doubt from their head and if earth is ready, mankind is ready, there could be a heaven, kingdom of heaven upon earth, a Ramaraja, which means that there will be a perfect union. See, people ask about an ideal kingdom. How it will come? ideal world unless nature is purified and transformed by the divine touch. That is where we understand that the parting of Rama and Sita which took place in far back ancient times which should have been the beginning of a new creation takes place after nearly 17,000, 18,000 or whatever years much later down the line with the coming together of Mother and Shirobindo. And we see something similar happening now. The moment they come together in 1915 there is the first world war and she is to go back something very similar and she has to go back with her husband who represented a, you know, himself uh, being no less than you know, the king of Lanka. So you see the same forces at work but eventually she comes back in 1920 and the two are together and a new divine family starts of which uh, all of you and all of us are fortunate inheritors. So Rama's story is a deeply symbolic mystic story as well as a physical story. But again, as I said, the fallout of Sita's uh, banishment, it creates something in Ramayana without which Ramayana would have been incomplete. And what is that? Ramayana is all about Rama. You know, everybody sings the glory of Rama. Where is Sita in it? Sita is kidnapped. Sita is, you know, uh, brought back. It is all Rama who is a chivalrous warrior. The man who for the sake of his wife challenges the Rakshasa and the Asura. Look at the chivalry. Just with an army of, he could have called people from Ayudhya, his kingdom, and from Janakpuri, Sita's kingdom. Why he didn't call? Because he was under the uh, orders of banishment. He had accepted it. So Rama would uphold the dharma. I can't use the kingdom's resources. So he goes in a daredevil act that I'll do or die, but this is not acceptable to me that... Any person kidnaps anybody and if Ravana can do this to Sita, he must be doing it to many, many women. And yes, indeed he was doing and he took on the challenge of the Asura. So there we see Rama chivalry. And then subsequently, however, when we see that, uh, you know, Rama uh, and Sita part, then we see that Sita's fullest strength comes. There are three occasions when we see Sita's, it becomes Sitayana, not Ramayana. The first is when Rama walks into the forest. Sita could have stayed back and said, well, I don't need to walk. After all, the order is not for me. Lakshman didn't need to walk, but still it's okay. He was literally like the shadow of Rama. 
and he is a himself a you know prince with valor and it's okay he will be with him so that you know they can guard each other but sita had no reason to go but out of her love that no everything is fine but who will take care of my husband and therefore she follows her own highest ideal of that time and goes with rama i am sure there are many many even today who will do that who will prefer love over all the you know comforts of a material life so sita's first uh, ideal not just womanhood but the power of womanhood shakti comes when she walks with rama the second is when sita is with the king of lanka despite fear and lures ravana lures her that you know if you come you will have much more much greater things forget rama what is he he is a vanvasi he is he can't uh, save you in any case so be my wife and you see if you come you will be the one whom i will treat as the ultimate mandotri will be in the background but sita does not accept it then ravana threatens sita does not accept it now when this to this degree we see that you know rama and sita story that time sita's utmost courage strength valor you know the feminine power comes and the third is when sita is banished into the forest she does not uh, file a court case if there was a possibility or you know have bitterness and grudge against rama she continues to bring up the two children in a most beautiful way sita sets the highest standard for women autonomy even if my husband is a god i don't depend on him and the way she brings up the two children is amazing they are so powerful so beautiful beings they don't have a word of grudge against rama this is how she brings up what a woman i mean i would say hats off and dandavat pranam so sita's banishment through that valmiki brings out the ideal feminine within uh, you know earth nature now there is one character missing in all this the very important character on whom also there are some questions that is hanuman so who is hanuman why doesn't he simply you know we know hanuman is a avatar of shiva again we see in hanuman's story there is the mystic element the occult element and hanuman can do things which you know ordinary human being cannot obviously they are powers and siddhis hanuman has but hanuman is a bhakta of rama hanuman is rama himself in another body he has come to set the highest standard of bhakti he has come to show to an animal humanity that you may not have hope all of us have an animal within us but through bhakti through love and surrender through service our animal nature can be changed in such a way that we can become a demigod so hanuman's story to start with shows to us whatever our nature may be even if we are through and through animal still through bhakti surrender love and uh, service to the divine our nature can be transformed and we can become demigod this first thing that hanuman shows second the surrender yes this question why didn't hanuman bring back sita he was capable of doing it but hanuman doesn't do it why because he has not been given orders rama didn't tell him to bring sita back and now hanuman's surrender helped in this way hanuman could have taken sita hanuman doesn't do that why because rama had not asked him to bring what would have happened if hanuman brought sita sita would have escaped but what would have happened to the asura and the rakshasa kingdom one of the purpose of rama was to ensure first to challenge ask them to surrender and thereby accept the humanization or not then face and whoever wins so it was something like that so when rama because sita refused to come 
This chance was given to Ravana and the entire family to surrender and change. If not, then face the battle and the change happens. If Sita would have come back, yes, Rama and Sita would have lived happily hereafter. But it was not a you know modern Hindi movie. <laughs> Rama, Ravana's Rama mission would have remained incomplete. And Ra- uh, Hanuman intuitively knew this. So he doesn't do that. And third about Hanuman's tale and the demolition of Lanka, I am sure we all know that this is a very, uh, again, like you know the Swarnamrig, it has become a uh, phrase to uh, reveal a deeper truth. So it is obviously we, to imagine that Hanuman had a tail burning and he was burning all the you know, uh, golden towers, if at all gold can be burned that way, is subtly, you know, even if you stretch human imagination, it will go to a fantastic proportion. But that story is a mystic symbol and till date that story is remembered as a mystic symbol. The symbol is that However high and mighty you may be, whether you are a Ravana with a golden city at your disposal, you may have the kingdom of Atlantis, you may be King Priam of Troy, but yet if you are living by Adharma, even the golden city of Lanka will be decimated, will be burned to ashes. So this is very clearly this story and number of stories of Sursa expanding and Hanuman entering and uh, you know coming out. Many of the stories in Ramayana also in Mahabharata, but less so. In Ramayana, we see, because Ramayana belongs to a much earlier age, you know, it's Treta Yuk story. So we see there uh, very clear mystic and occult symbols. And these mystic and occult sim- symbols are produced, uh, are intermixed with the story in such a beautiful way that it runs like a common narrative. That's the beauty. That's something great about the artist. You know, imagine doing a painting where you don't know where the real painting is, where there is an optical effect. So you see even modern mind, extremely rational. When we read through the story, it never strikes us that here is a symbol. How could Hanuman be burning everything? It is so beautifully interposed. We see the same thing in the stories of Bhagavata of Sri Krishna. Absolutely fabulous work. And then when we look at this story from a even from a work of art, that how he has blended deep spiritual truths, many others, which you know I am not uh, right now taking up. I'll quickly see if there are some more questions left or you know you can ask questions if you wish to I'll be very happy we see that the whole story is at once there is a physical being called Rama no doubt a king of Ayodhya and you know he is in he is mentioned in several scriptures there is a whole lineage which is mentioned and who set the highest standard for humanity now why is Rama relevant to us we may ask Rama is relevant to us I mean humanity has moved forward no doubt about it we don't you know uh, banish a lady because you know she has been outside we give her the freedom of choice so that's uh, today's times but during Rama's time this happened and today it shouldn't happen because you know humanity has moved forward but why is we don't for example you know go with a dagger in hand and sort out our personal issue we file a court case whether it's good or bad is a different issue but that's how modern humanity which is more rational humanity will proceed like that which is good but then why is Rama still relevant? This is the question we should ask. Where are the monkeys? Where are the asuras? Where is somebody you know, kidnapping away on a Pushpak Viman? Well, modern Viman, whatever we say. The story is relevant. One, because Rama is the first person within this geographical boundary which today we call as India. But that time it was called as Jambudweep. And in that kingdom, Rama is the first king who establishes in place of Jambudweep Arivarta. 
मीनिंग देयर बाई द लैंड ऑफ दोज हु लिव बाई द हाइएस्ट स्टैंडर्ड्स ऑफ देयर टाइम आर्यन एज वी ऑल नो शिविंदो हैज यू नो स्पोकन एट लेंथ अबाउट इट मैनी अदर पर्सन स्वामी विवेकानंद एंड मैनी अदर्स दिस आर्यन द्रविडियन थ्योरी इज एन अटर यू नो हम्बक थिंग क्रिएटेड टू क्रिएट ए डिवाइड सो हु इज द आर्यन ही इज अ साइकोलॉजिकल टाइप ऑफ ह्यूमैनिटी हु वुड गिव इज लाइफ दैन इज प्रोमिस हु वुड गिव इज पर्सनल कम्फर्ट दैन द किंगडम and the truth and the ideals he upholds who would embrace all within his fold and release them into freedom rama does that who would not create distinctions you know even that he is a you know fallen being he is an accursed being no even the most accursed when he comes the aryan embraces even when he conquers he does not crush those whom he conquers look at the difference between rama a person 17 18000 years back and look at england 100 years back and compare the civilized nation of today with a so called uncivilized humanity 20000 years back rama conquers lanka but he doesn't uh, you know say that i am the king he withdraws from lanka rama conquers kishkindha but he doesn't say i am the king of kishkindha compare it with the british coming into india conquering changing converting hanging by the neck and we can see where is that standard of civilization so rama had come to set is the first person who embodies the soul of the aryan type of course aryan type is not a fixed type he evolves from rama he goes on to krishna he goes on to buddha and he you know now shobinda has set a even greater standard so this is how but he is the first person who established within the entire kingdom because rama doesn't stay in ayodhya alone before that we have parshuram and others but rama is the first person who as a human being right down from all the way from ayodhya to lanka establishes a new idea and an ideal of what human being should be and what uh, a kingdom should be is rama infallible no rama is fallible no doubt about it rama represented the ideal human mind the ideal ethical values and ethical values are always ultimately subject to some error he had not come to spiritualize or divinize humanity as shri krishna and shri aurobindo came to do so he showed the fallibility there is the fallibility by any moral or ethical standard one if any of us can name where when you do an act it will not have adverse repercussions on others invariably as somebody is very rightly you know put that you know rightly little you know i i like the innocent way of putting it what's wrong with supanka after all she you know a lady who needed love yes she is a lady lady who needed love probably no doubt about it i agree but look at it now if lakshmana went with supanka to satisfy her need for love what would have happened to urmila and if <laughs> lakshmana did not listen to her supanka is devastated there is no moral standard in this world which can be universal which can make everybody happy no and sometimes the choice is between a lesser evil and a greater evil sometimes the choice is between keeping your personal hands clean and becoming a good guy in the you know uh, annals of history vis-a-vis taking on frontally the evil smudging your hands 
and yet freeing the world, looking, making it a better place. So this is what the, was the choice for Rama. He had come to make this world clean, cleansed of the Asra and the Rakshasa and to humanize the animal kind. This was his mission. He accomplished it very well. As regards his personal life, what should be an ideal man-woman relationship, he left it much later. I would say probably for sure Bindo to come and fulfill it. <laughs> Otherwise, that was not his mission, not his work. And Sita was fully with him. She knew that why Rama is doing whatever he is doing. That is the kind of trust, the sacrifice, the story of Tyaga, uh, Tapasya and sacrifice. This what in India were the highest values. The highest values in India were not like, you know, I want to do it and I do it. I am happy. So and so is happy and I live my life happily hereafter. The highest values they, that have been embodied in the Indian, uh, not constitution, but Indian character to whom we belong happily and fortunately are Tyaga, sacrifice. Rama sacrifices his kingdom. Rama also sacrifices his wife. It's not that he was happy doing it. Why? Because he wants to uphold the highest standards. He never lived happily thereafter. It's, if you read the story, he is a miserable human being. He takes the misery upon himself, but gives protection, gives you know, sunrakshan to the kingdom. There is a pathos in that story, but a divine pathos. How a divine being sacrifices, and it's not only Rama. In Rama's case, we see it in an extreme way. What about Krishna's life? What about the life of Buddha? Did Buddha do a right thing or a wrong thing by leaving his wife? Is the upward side of the story. Well, if you look at personal life, he did a wrong thing. His wife would have been happy. His kingdom would have been happy had he continued with his family life. But Buddha would not have been Buddha and countless number of human beings would not have been inspired if Buddha would not have left Yashodra and gone away. Look at Shurabindo. Shurabindo leaving behind Milani Devi and walking because he is followed by a divine call. Imagine... Shobindu could have been happy with his wife and uh, you know, would have earned a name for himself in the freedom struggle, been regarded as a great leader and lived happily hereafter, having children and all the rest. But again we see him upholding the highest Aryan ideals, Tyaga, Tapasya. And thanks for that, though there was one Milani Devi who must have suffered, I am sure, but there are countless, countless others like us who feel redeemed by that touch. So this is a choice sometimes we have in morality where there is a personal issue of a life and there is a larger collective issue. The same thing we see in the Gita. Arjuna refuses to fight. They are my own people, my own cooler. But there is a larger standard and that has to be upheld. So smaller for the sacrifice for the greater. And that is what is the whole idea of dharma. Dharma for uh, Rama is most important for Krishna, Shirobindo. We see now what really is this dharma? How can the divine manifest in this earth? How can you set a highest standard of being and living given the context of time? Of course, this standard evolves as we evolve. Dharma has this evolutionary dimension in Indian thought. It's not a fixed rule of do's and don'ts. Things that Rama did, we need not do today. Certainly, we need not, and we should not. But we must yet salute. For that age, for him who established the soul of dharma within Aryavarth. Before that, if you see, we have uh, Parshuram and all the lineage of avatars. We don't see that kind of other stories are all on the subtle plane. The only story which probably takes place on earth is 
Parshuram. Before that, Vamana. They are all stories on the subtle plane. But in matter life, in material life, in a embodied geographical space, the first person whom we see establishing the soul of India in the heart of India, that is Rama. So our salutations to him. So this is, um, you know, um, I think I've covered some of the questions. If anything is left, by and large, yeah, just to... Um, I think more or less I haven't really seen but yeah Lanka on fire that is covered up um, Ravana is king of Demon and he was way more talented yeah I have already covered it that you know I think more or less they are covered right uh, can, you, can you please expand just a little on uh, Sita being asked to leave the kingdom uh, that that aspect by Rama and there's a question on that uh, on page three. Yes. Can you just say, speak a little more on that aspect on on the Agni Pariksha and the subsequent departure of, of Sita? That's that's a that's a crucial part to get. Yes. So Agni Pariksha, I have already explained that this is a you know when a great poet like Valmiki writes uh, epic of the nature which is endured, we must understand that Agni Pariksha is very very clearly a symbol. It's not a real event. I can tell you that that it's an impossibility for any woman, however chaste she may be, because human body will follow the laws of the body. It's an untransformed body. So Agni Pariksha, we have to look at it purely as a purification of material nature, going through a process of purification, which is a tapasya, and thereby becoming fit to meet the divine within and become one. This Agni Pariksha, uh, there is no other way we can look at Agni Pariksha using our rational mind. But symbolically, we can understand it. Sita's banishment is at once physical and symbolic. First part is that yes, Sita's symbol, uh, banishment, uh, I have told about the story of uh, Shatrughan um, taking a similar decision earlier and Rama, before he could change the law, the, he is confronted by an archaic law. Now Rama could have changed the law, it was within his uh, thing to change the law. But Rama didn't choose to change the law because it would have been very odd that the king conveniently changes the law. So he went by the law, which was to banish a lady who has been with somebody uh, for a month. I mean, she cannot again be with, um, uh, with you know, with uh, with the same husband. Now it is no doubt a law which, if at all there is such a law, it must be changed, and I am sure it has changed now. As I said, everything in Rama's story is not something we have to practice today in modern times. Subtly, it is the most tragic incidence. But as I said, when a great poet is weaving out an epic, you have to see what is the fallout of that story. It is this story which suddenly changes the story of Rama from the story of Rama to the story of Sita. The beauty of Sita, the strength of Sita, which would not have come out. So we have to understand how the narrative comes. There are people who believe that there is nothing like this happened. But I don't believe. I believe that something like this did happen. That's why, you know, Uttar Khan, many people try to avoid it. Yes, Rama did that and it's not a right thing to do. But for Rama, as I said, the choice was between personal morality, personal happiness and the good of the kingdom. If Rama would not have banished Sita, Rama would have been happily, Sita would have been happy hereafter, both of them. But there would have been this blot that, well, when it came to himself, the king upheld his personal happiness over the law of the land. 
And Rama chose to do it. Why he had to do it incognito? He couldn't have confronted and faced the whole event. So the whole, all the brothers, you know, Lakshman, they, when you read that incident, is very hard, you know, the tragic pathos. But the beauty of that incident, as I said, is it brings out the best of Sita. And banished from kingdom is a way of saying he, she was well within the kingdom, but all the ashramas were above the kingdom. She goes into Rishi Valmiki's ashram. So ashrams were not regarded as something subject to the king. In fact, they were the ones who uh, were supposed to look after the kingdom. So when it is said banished out of the kingdom, well, it was Rama's kingdom. Valmiki's ashram is there But because she is in an ashram Ashramas were supposed to be exempt From the rule of the land Or you know the king Because the rishis were there Who were far more wiser And they were the ones Who were the custodians Of even the king's ethical standards So when she goes to Valmiki's ashram It means that she is Beyond the pale of social norms And you know the king's laws And other things She is in that place where uh, nobody can touch her, nobody can, you know, come and uh, threaten her or ask her any questions. That was the reason why she's there. So it's not really banished from kingdom in that sense. And as I said, yes, that's an event. Definitely Rama carries with him in his own heart as something to be changed for a future time. Rama himself suffers, Sita suffers. And yet Rama had to do it. I, as I said, comparing with the analogy of Buddha, that there are moments when you have to choose between your personal happiness and setting the highest standard of conduct for, you know, everybody. And Rama does that. Not fully justifiable, no doubt about it. And yet there is within it a sense of breadth of the divine afflatus. If Rama would have been happy, if Rama would have done it under the spell of personal suspicion, if Rama would have banished her and said, see how great a king I am, if Rama would have got remarried, that would have been the real blot on Rama's character. Rama doesn't do that. He shows that even after the banishment of Sita, he lives alone, loving Sita with all his heart. And of course, that dharti ka fatna and you know, Sita's going inside is very clearly again symbolic. Earth nature, from where she has emerged, goes back to earth nature. Some stamp it carries that there is a possibility of a divine union of nature and the soul. You see this, to understand this union of nature and the soul, one has to go into the mystic lore. Mystic lore distinguishes between soul, which is the divine element within us, and the prakriti or the nature, material nature, which is the creation of the evolutionary process. And this evolutionary process that takes place in matter, through which new possibilities, new faculties, new capacities develop. So, Sita represents that. She embodies the earth nature. And that's why she is a Bhumija, born from the earth nature. And it is in the union of material nature, completely purified, completely changed, divinized, and the beautiful, pure, divine element within us, that there lies the secret of transformation and the beginning of a kingdom of heaven upon earth. This is what the story, mystically. So we can look at the entire Ramayana story from a purely mystic and symbolic level. Eventually, that is what will endure. I'll give an example. The Mahabharata takes place. We can talk about whether it was good on of Krishna to engage in such a massive massacre, to ask Arjuna to kill his own people or not. We can debate that, and you know, we can even say there are people who say Krishna did a wrong thing. He killed, you know, he allowed Dronacharya to be killed in a certain way. Bhishma was killed in a certain way, but it was a similar dilemma for Krishna. 
does he smudge his own hands or keep his own hands clean and be regarded as you know the epitome of non violence or he lets his hands be smudged but opens the way for human evolution he knew that with duryodhana and uh, uh, you know all these people at the helm of affairs there is no way that humanity can progress easily toward the future they had to go he gives them a choice rama also gives the choice to the king of lanka he gives them a choice of course he gave a choice this idea that he suddenly didn't counsel him and talk to him is not true he sends at least two emissaries the first is hanuman hanuman tells him that don't do this and he does it then he sends a proper emissary angad and he tries to even kill angad so it's not true that rama didn't try to talk to you know ravana and tell him that you know stop your ways he did and even otherwise as was the custom in those days through emissaries and even when ravana comes that is the time when rama spares him he could have easily killed him but he doesn't do that because he wants to stand stay by the highest standards so in rama's life and in krishna's life we see something similar well mahabharata whether it was there or not we can debate who was right who was wrong but we see that mahabharata cleared the path for mankind to move toward the future because the kingdom of yudhishthira who would rule with dharma yudhishthira again we see a man living by ethics he has done wrongs no doubt about it ethics is not the highest uh, rule of life but yet given the choice between duryodhana and yudhishthir yudhishthir is a much better person so that's how we have to look at you know always in life we have these relative choices and the second thing we see the fallout of mahabharata is the geeta is in our hands mahabharata may or may not have been true but the geeta is there so the whole ramayana story can be seen in this way not the actual details who really spoke and who who you know really said this dialogue well we don't know it there is a beautiful weaving of the narrative by the poet but what is he trying to convey see when we look at an epic of a grand scale what is the poet trying to convey few take home points that eventually satyameva jayate the dharma always wins second that when there is a choice between individual and collective you know public morality and the a collective good choose the collective good even if you know individually it hurts you it pains you third be chivalrous and courageous among men do not shrink from a battle of life even if the enemy is a strong opponent like ravana stand by dharma you rise or fall but stand by dharma fourth the woman is not a weak character she is strong like sita stronger by her fate stronger by adversity every adversity in sita's life makes her strong if sita would have stayed back in the kingdom of uh, you know dashratha she would have been just another woman so this is the fourth aspect of the story fifth however mighty you may be even if you know like a ravana even if you may be talented capable yet if you live by adharma one day you will have your downfall if this story looks too idealistic in our own 100 years back less than that we have seen how hitler mussolini and stalin fell much worse than ravana much more capable of much greater devastation yet they fell so had they read ramayana and got the message hitler would have probably thought twice before engaging in what he did he had obviously not read he read it from the wrong side he wanted to get occult powers from india this is the message that's why ramayana is relevant that till today imperialism what happened to imperialism there was a time when it was said that the sun of british empire never sets today it has set so much that there is a you know uh, you know with brexit and new things that you know one is wondering 
what to do to restore the son not the sun son but the sun son look at the irony of the whole thing so ramayana gives us that message that even if you have all the splendors like the king of lanka even if you are a developed civilization like atlantis no less you know materially developed but if you are spiritually not developed material development and even your you know capacities and talents will one day lead to ruin if you are not living a life of dharma then another lesson of ramayana is however crude an animal we may be even in rakshasa or asura this is the mystic symbol if you surrender to the divine as vibhishna could do as hanuman could do as sugriv could do there is hope for us even if we are a vanara chanchal restless curious that's how hanuman describes himself we call him today ram bhagat hanuman but hanuman says you know i am a restless monkey what to do i i can't sit for meditation my mind is never at still that's why he goes to a garden and starts plucking fruits i am a monkey that's my nature but this monkey put at the service of the divine the mystic symbol of ramayana can be transformed into a demigod hanuman is one of the immortals another immortal is vibhishna can you see the beauty of the story vibhishna is an asura he is born of the asurkul so it doesn't matter again another beautiful thing of the story it doesn't matter what your birth is what matters is what your actions are vishna's deeds vishna surrendered to the divine changes him from an asura to a deva type he is one of the immortals meaning thereby he is one of the gods that's what the immortals mean not just that physically he is still present and um, many other such mystic symbols wherein the story brings out the story of kevat again a very deep mystic symbol many many mystic symbols in the ramayana we can look at ramayana purely as a mystic story and if you don't get into this you know nitpicking details which is okay but if you look at the story as a large whole you see when we look at a sea it gives us delight but is everything happening inside the sea beautiful no there are sharks which are absorbing poor little fishes but yet the sea gives a delight when you look at it from the totality there are tsunamis when lakhs of people die so when you look at a story and a narrative it is good to look at it from a totality even a human being supposing you know we all will be just one day but when we if we look at small little incidents here and there so ramayana teaches us to look at a human being in totality to look at everything in totality and then most importantly rama represents the ethical mind it says that well ethical mind can help but it cannot solve all the problems of society rama could not this is a fact that rama could not solve all the problems of his own times including in his own personal life and this failure proves uh, paves the way for the coming of krishna and buddha and shurabindo so there are loopholes like a master ikebana artist you know when he does a very perfect art he leaves the scissor by the side that somebody would come and make it still more perfect that's why we have the lineage of avatars the avatar doesn't come and just uh, put back the same cycle same place he takes it one step forward rama's business was to take an animal humanity to a more humanized humanity he did that admirably well his business was to eliminate the asura and the rakshasa he did that admirably well his business was not to show that you know how to love your wife forever and ever well it was not his business and he did a bad job if you want to put it like that but still not so bad a job given that he goes all the way to lanka with utmost chivalry dare devil act face death and yet take the challenge of the asura something which even modern mind it's okay that we love our wives and children and husbands 
But how many of us will stand up and do this what he has done? It is something amazing. As to this, you know, idea about personal and uh, larger issue of Raj Dharma and uh, personal Dharma, you know, it, it is relevant even till today. I'll tell you a story which uh, was made into a film based on a true story. If somebody knows the name, please tell me. Uh, it was, I started with R. There is a lady who marries a Pakistani officer. Do you remember the story? Anybody remembers the name of the film? Yeah, anybody knows? Have you seen that film? It was a film which was released two years back. And it's based on a true story where a woman marries a Pakistani officer just for passing on the intelligence to India. Because she is a patriot to the core. She marries and eventually she becomes the cause of a husband's death. Is it right or is it wrong? Take this question. She did something which definitely is wrong as far as her personal life is concerned. You can say she cheated her husband. But she didn't cheat her husband for the sake of another man. She deceived her husband for the sake of a Razi. Razi is the film. Now when you read this story, so there are times when you have dilemmas like that. She cheated upon her husband, deceived him. But cheated upon for what? Not for another man, not for personal pleasure. She put her own life at stake. And because she felt the greater good of her own country, that was important. Because that was the time when Pakistan was trying from every side to corner India. She enters, deep penetrates and gathers the intelligence. By the way, there was another film which was made, Ghazi. She is the one who had passed the information that there is going to be a submarine attack and averted it. So can you imagine that she averted a large-scale disaster which could have taken place? That due to the deceit of, you know, that time Pakistan army and, you know, who wanted to attack. Why? Because she put her own personal life at stake. And yes, definitely she deceived her husband. So in, in life, there are such dilemmas not between right and wrong, but between rival rights. That's where Gita also starts. So there is a lesser right, there is a greater right. There is a lesser unit, there is a greater unit. And one has to make a choice. So the lesson of Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the Gita, of life itself is that choose the greater good, choose the larger good, choose that which is more deeply, intimately connected with the Dharma than the immediate thing of the moment. That's what Rama chose, that's what Krishna chose, that's what I am sure deep within we all will choose. If there is a choice for a soldier between his own life and his family comfort, he chooses, uh, I, I mean, the life of the nation. He chooses the life of the nation. It's a bad thing. He should have run away. Why? Because his family will suffer. But he chooses it. So there are in life choices like that. Not always between right and wrong. As we look at it, it's an oversimplified version of life. But between rival rights. And how do we make a choice? We choose based on the dharma. What will lead to a larger unfolding of the divinity in man? Of course, now we have a new thing which mother brings it. How to know this dharma is not by any artificial standard, but by the voice of the soul within. The union with the divine will. That's how she brings it. But till you do that, well, this was the standard which Rama followed. 
people would judge him right or wrong yet look at the beauty of the epic look at now just enjoy this aspect people have debated about ramayana you know and they would continue to debate but have you seen that people have debated they have come lived and gone but rama and yours isn't it a marvel it's not just a belief system nobody ever converts anybody to the belief of rama cult suparnaka is a cult in a name nobody there is nobody who is converting people by force believe in rama otherwise you will be killed and yet rama is endured because there is something about rama when you read the ramayana this is my suggestion please read the ramayana read ramcharitmanas if valmiki is more difficult and at the end of the whole narrative you will see rama as somebody who is really worth emulating yes not in all aspects but in the essence he brings out the divine afflatus of man, in man the manhood of man manhood of man is not about man with a woman well equally for a woman sita she is deeply inspiring and moving character she brings out the best within a woman so both are fighters both are warriors at different grounds they fight personal and collective battle and they don't always win but still they leave their beautiful stamp on the indian psyche and that is why they have endured and will continue to endure for times to come any other question There is this Ahilya story, na Gautam Rishi cursing his wife Ahilya. Uh, what, what okay, that? very good. I am glad. Ahilya story is that true? Uh, you want to know about Ahilya story? Okay, thank you for asking that. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, how could we miss it out? <laughs> so Ahilya story is a very fascinating story. Um, Ahilya story runs like this: that she is married to Rishi Gautama, and both are engaged in a tapasya. and a point of time comes when indra falls for ahilya the whole narrative i'll tell you and uh, indra falls for ahilya and comes to his devious and crooked ways so he makes a plan and the plan is this that when gautam rishi uh, you know they will make sure that he goes early morning for bath to outside there were no taps and municipality water he'll go to the river and between the time when he comes back indra will go dressed up as you know he can he's a uh, fantastic uh, makeup artist and he'll change his face into gautam rishi and go and entice ahilya uh, you know seduce her sleep with her and come back and uh, he will be satisfied that's how the story is put and when gautam rishi comes he comes to know this has happened and she also realizes it's a mistake and though it's a genuine mistake yet king gautam in a fit of anger curses her that you become a stone and she becomes a stone and this stone ahilya um, is redeemed by the touch of rama so this story of course for as far as rama is concerned this about his divinity that he comes and redeems but now look at the story the whole story the, as i said there are many uh, stories which are deeply mystic very few people know what happened to rishi gautam by the way gautam eventually goes on to write what is called as a nyaya shastra you see his personal life he has done a grave injustice gautam is not to be justified through these means but gautam because he has done a grave justice what is the atonement for such a man reflect upon what true justice is and today we have you know these six branches of indian philosophy one of them is nyaya nyaya vaisheshika mimamsha now uh, yoga now gautam is the one who reflects upon what justice is what it ought to be and he comes up with this scripture on nyaya 
we may or may not follow it that's not so important but the story of ailia is this that they are two beings who are engaged in a deep spiritual pursuit they are beings not just common married couple and they are the ones when, who are ascending to higher and higher levels of consciousness now when you go to higher and higher levels of consciousness you are tested and these tests become more and more subtle as you ascend so as they are ascending the test becomes so subtle because you know you i mean this is something well known to mystics the madhuran shobindo speaks about it you have to become more and more vigilant it's like this when you are driving a scooter on the road be careful when you are driving a aircraft you should be doubly triply careful so as we grow in yoga one has to become far more careful and vigilant so there is a point of time when indra decides to test it's his job bad job you know not a good job description but anyways that's his job so he comes and tests uh ahilya that let me see is he really ready now how does he test by assuming the form of gautam rishi is the subtlest of test so what is the test there the test is very simple two fold test both of them were engaged in a kind of tapasya which needed complete brahmacharya and even if her husband came and wanted to be with her it was ahilya's business to tell him look here not now we are engaged and it was it's not the time you know you have he goes to come back to do his prayers it's not the auspicious time also when you should be just sleeping with me and the third element is that it is not by the form but by the consciousness we recognize and these are the three places where ahilya made a subtle mistake not a mistake where she should be punished certainly not but this is the mistake she made when she was moving in that direction and gautam made a worse mistake he also was overtaken by anger and in a fit of passion he curses so both fall it's not just ahilya falls both fall for ahilya she becomes like a stone it's like a stone means not a physical stone it is called a jalavat in in modern language we would say she developed depression stupor she went into a stupro state where she would not eat where she would not drink she would stay in that state because naturally you know any woman it's it's very hurtful and this man also suffered a fall but he instead of going into a shell he goes through a lot of personal pain and agony because you know whatever he may try now this curse is so tremendous curse means that word which has been released from his mouth that ahilya won't come out he doesn't have the power to bring back ahilya so he suffers in one way and ahilya suffers in another way of course both have their own issues involved as i said but the story ends with a very beautiful way and that is how the touch of the divine can redeem and it redeems again ahilya stone even if we are in the most ridiculous absurd states ahilya stone is ridiculous for no fault of ours i mean it can hardly be regarded as a fault this kind of thing yet the grace is there and it can redeem you in such a way when ahilya is changed from the stone like state jadvat avastha she doesn't become yet again back to her womanhood she becomes a goddess and ascends to heaven so the story is clearly symbolic even if we have fallen doesn't matter even if we are for whatever reason not because of our own fault because of our husband's fault or wife's fault or whoever's fault there is always somebody or the other something in us opened the doors to it doesn't matter even in that most absurd state the touch of the divine grace can redeem us and redeem us in such a way that we skip stages and immediately arrive where we have to be we should be now the beauty of this story is ahilya is in a jadavat state but though outwardly she is like a stone she is constantly waiting for lord rama that is the tapas she is engaged in 
because she has been told this that one day Rama will come and his touch will redeem you. So when we live life like that, the same truth is given in the Gita in different way. That even if you are in the worst of states, so in 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 Sanatan Dharma there is nothing like eternal damnation or in eternal hell. You may be in the darkest and most fallen state. Still, if you call God's name, very soon you are released from it and you become one with the gods. This is how the Gita puts it. And in the Rama's narrative, it's put as a story, wherein even if we are in the worst of states, the touch of the divine releases us from a stone-like state into a god-like state, from a state where we are completely subject to inert material nature to a state of freedom and largeness and joy. Now, this is how we have to see. So, as I was saying, we can look at the story from a very surface point of view. Surface point of view, what is this, Ahilya? Because she's a woman, she has to suffer. By the way, Gautam also suffered. Of course, he has to take the much greater burden of the evil. And that's why he suffers much more, because he's conscious of the sin he has done. So, this is one part. But when you look at the story from the deeper aspect, you discover the sense the mystic sense within it so in Ramayana several places nobody has asked me the story of Sambhuk similar thing so all these stories are about a deeper mystic truth which have been told to us in the form of a narrative it's not that the story is false some things happen but to believe that a stone again changed into a uh, woman not even a woman a godlike being and ascended to heaven uh, obviously it's it's a mystic occult story it's not about physical event happening that you know somebody will touch a stone and it will change into a being so in these stories there is a mystic sense which we have lost that's the problem when we read this story because now our gaze is only outward we are like Dumat Sena in Savitri our mind has you know we have fallen blind so we cannot see the deeper mystic truths all of us this uh, uh, myst- but when we recover these mystic truths through yoga then we discover that Array, this story is like mine I have experienced the state, I mean, all of us, at least I can say for myself, states when we are like Ahilya for no fault of ours, we feel fallen, we feel downcast, we feel absolutely, you know, lifeless. And yet, again, I can speak for myself and countless others, just calling the mother, we have not only come out of that state, we feel once again a godlike joy. So then you understand the story, oh, this is so beautiful, a mystic story. We have all experienced in our ascension test and we fall. And we realized that test was very subtle. It was not very gross, very subtle. And yet we are redeemed by the grace. So we can look at the whole story, narrative of Ahilya and all others. Ultimately Ramayana is a spiritual scripture. It's not just a religious scripture. We should not forget it. So it's not just history in the sense of history as a physical documentation of facts. It is history in the sense that it is something which brings out the deep archetypes of human nature which are perennially relevant and connects them with a spiritual thread of evolution which is running behind life. That's how it is history. In India, Itihas means that. It's not just a physical narrative. Just to close with an example that if somebody were to write about Mahabharata purely from an outer perspective, what would be Krishna? There would be an entry in the Wikipedia of war. Krishna was... a uh, uh, cowherd's man who was uh, you know driving the chariot of Arjuna he belonged to a low caste <laughs> but you know they will add that narrative will be added but he wanted to be on a powerful side and somehow make the Pandavas win now all that is not you know this is how the narrative will run 
so that he can be on the right, uh, correct side. But that is not the truth of Krishna. Krishna was such a warrior that alone he could decimate the entire Kaurava army. But that apart, when we look at the same Mahabharata story from the mystic point of view, when the whole war is over and each of the Yodhas are debating who is greater of amongst us, then they go to Barbaric. He is supposed to be that character without, you know, again a mystic symbol as a person with a head and not a body who can see the whole war. So they ask him, who was the greatest warrior of us all? And he laughs. And they ask him, why, did, why do you laugh? Tell us, tell us. He says, because I saw only one warrior on both sides. Who is he? He says, I saw Krishna this side and Krishna on the other side. So the same story seen from the material angle is one and seen from the mystic angle is another. So in India, there was a time when the mystic vision, when the occult vision from the spiritual understanding was very, very prominent. And the Ramayana and Mahabharata still carry relevance to all who have this part awakened. But it is true that in today's time, which is the product of an extreme left side rational analytical age, which was needed at one point of time, we have lost that vision. And we need to capture it, not abandon reason, but to purify it and uplift it to a divine reason. Then we see the symbol, then we see the mystic truth, the occult happenings and the spiritual threat. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, what was Rama's age when he uh, was asked to go to exile? Okay, okay. See, that is a very... Um, <laughs> uh, it is said that the age of mankind from Satyug, from, uh, you know, Satyug till now has dwindled. So, I'll tell you just to give an example of comparison. When Dasratha begot Rama, he's supposed to be thousand years of age. Now, you know, I believe that it's a narrative which means that many, many very great old man. He couldn't have, you know, so the yagna and all that takes place. So Rama also was fairly, you know, uh, in his, uh, maybe in his 30s or 40s, that's how, what I have read the narrative, but I may not be uh, accurate in that terms. And that was nothing at that point of time. I mean, a hundred years age would be uh, a youthful man. So that's what I said, 14 years was actually, if you look at from our perspective, 80 to 14, when you look at an age when people were supposed to live for hundreds of years, 14 years was nothing but, you know, a fraction of a moment. For that matter, even during the Mahabharata, was it not the case that uh, you would attain the prime of your youth when you were in the... Yeah, yeah. Mahabharata war, Arjuna was 70 years of age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arjuna was and, 70 at the time, yeah. Bhishma was 170 and uh, Krishna himself was about 108 or around 100. So that was a time when age factor as of today was very different. Arjuna was 70 in the prime of his youth. <laughs> you can imagine. So, I mean, I don't remember the exact age of Rama, but it was certainly not like, you know, a 25 year old uh, person being coronated the king of a you know, country. Rama didn't mind it. It was also like, okay, I'll get an experience of facing the daredevil asuras. So we can look at it like that. It was not such a big deal, 14 years, during those days as it would be today. I have one more question. Yes, please. Uh, why would uh, the god give boons to uh, the Rakshasas even if they knew that they were going to misuse it? Oh, boons given to Rakshasa, not just boons. Please add the adjective impossible boons. <laughs> so, <laughs> especially by Lord Brahma and Lord Shiva. 
and Vishnu has to come to balance. Well, you see, creation works like that. Creation works like that, that if you have to evolve, after all, who are the Rakshasa and the Asuras? They are the ones who oppose the evolutionary plan. So they are strengthened by the divine, ultimately through these gods, to oppose the evolutionary plan. What kind of a planning is this? Now this planning, if you go into the deeper aspect, it's very evident that by opposition, you grow in strength to achieve and deserve what you are really wanting. So in, in a more psychological sense, uh, it is called as the shadow. So Asura and Rakshasas are the shadow. And the shadow is so strong that it doesn't let you realize what you are born to realize. Now we would all want, ki, oh I wish there was no opposition. But imagine if there is no opposition, where will our strength and wisdom come out? Imagine the story of Ravana, uh, Ramayana, just to put it in context. Imagine the story of Ramayana without Ravana, without Meghnath, anybody. All are good guys and you know, Rama, Rama came upon earth and he married Sita and everything was wonderful hereafter. You know, something is missing in the story. It is Rama's manhood. So Asuras are oppose the plan, but by opposing, they end up helping the plan of God. So they, in the larger picture, in the grandest narrative, this opposition helps us to grow in strength and wisdom. It's like, you know, when, a, when you, uh, as somebody has beautifully said, wisdom is the light that comes after passing through the storm. So Asuras represent the stormy and turbulent side of human nature. And they are not just outside. In today's times, we should look at them inside. So we ourselves will find what a strength this shadow has of holding us back. Who has given it the strength? If you look at it, they, they have not done tapasya and got the boon. But strength is there. It doesn't allow us easily to escape into the greater truth. But it is still given. And it is given because by facing that opposition, we go stronger and wiser. So asuras are given, uh, strengthened by Brahma and uh, Shiva. Also because they know eventually no asura, no rakshasa can cancel the original will. They know it. So it is done with full knowledge that you oppose, doesn't matter. By opposing, you will end up actually facilitating and hastening my work. And there are many, many examples of this even in modern times, which, you know, paucity of time, I am not entering into it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.